All right, we are in Acts, and we are going to be starting in chapter 18, verse 23. If you have your text this morning, that's where we will be. Um, a quick review of part of Paul's timeline, um, some approximation uh, when people are trying to piece things together, but born about uh, 5 AD, and then we have, of course, around 30 years old, uh, Paul's conversion, and then we've been walking through the past few weeks, the first journey, about 46 to 48, second journey, 50 to 52, and today the third uh, journey, 53 to 57. And if you just kind of, you know, do your quick math, um, Paul is, you know, at the conclusion of his third journey, he's about 50 years old. So I don't know what you have in your mind of him like cruising around the Mediterranean in a, in a walker or something like that, but uh, he's a fairly young guy uh, still at his conversion, full of uh, spit and fire and all of that, and then uh, he's off on these journeys, and so that's what we're going to dig in to today. Um, oh, I guess I should go back and just say uh, about 67, 68, we're not entirely sure, trial and execution, right? So early 60s, uh, that's when that happened. Here's a, a map, uh, depending on your eyesight, how well you can see, but uh, Antioch in Syria, uh, up on the top right, and then of course, uh, a loop, we've seen this loop, so this is not unfamiliar. This is, it changes, it extends uh, each time Paul goes out based on what God's doing, uh, who he's meeting, how it's moving, and uh, you can kind of see a muddle up in the top left there around Corinth, Philippi, Athens, those areas we have, you'll see in the text, there's kind of a back and forth and a retracing of steps and all of those things, but that's where we're going to be. So um, Acts 18, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that uh, you would use this text this morning to speak to us. Uh, we trust that um, whatever is here in this third journey of Paul and his companions as they follow you, that you can use that uh, to shape us and mold us um, and convict us and lead us. So we invite you to do that in Christ's name. Amen. So here we go, Acts 18. After spending some time in Antioch, and that's the Syria, Syrian one, Paul sent, set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. So uh, upper right, Paul, Antioch, over on the far side, Ephesus. You can see it on the coast there. Um, we have this, this character, Apollo, shows up there. He was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the Scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila from last week, they were exiled from Rome. They're, they were Jews exiled from Rome, so they're over in this region. And notice that they have invited him into their home. Hospitality, right? Hospitality. So that was one of our things last week. How do we extend and receive and accept hospitality. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him, 
wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was of a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos is quite the weapon. So he moves from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea, and he lands over there in that region, and he's a great help uh, to the believers there. would like to point out in this, uh, just brief opening of the third journey, uh, bringing back to this uh, grid or this kind of layout, that real life, real locations, real people in real time, the development of the church and the Christian faith is underway, but it's playing out uh, the way our lives play out. Did you pick up, and we'll touch on it, but Apollos, I mean, this guy is intelligent. Uh, he has um, kind of a spirit of, of strength. He's accurate. He's all these things. But did you catch, what did it say about baptism? He only knew of the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist. So this is interesting. There's an incompleteness there. Um, he's an important figure. You can read about him in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we saw he's from Alexandria, which uh, if you look on the map, it's not on here, but far left on the coast, down off the map, that Alexandria in Egypt would be there. So that's an important place, um, university-type town. Uh, he's a follower with Jesus with an incomplete understanding of baptism, right? Uh, and here's the point. Luke wants us to see that the gospel is spreading by and through people who are not part of the inner circle. So it's like, hey, Paul's journey, we get a little, and then all of a sudden this guy, Apollos, and he's not from that area. He's, doing, he's accurate about Jesus, but the gospel and the church has been spreading outside by and through people who are not part of the inner circle and by people who are developing and growing. And guess what? It's okay. If you're developing, anybody else developing and growing? Just me? Okay, great. Um, it's okay. Uh, somewhere along the line, and maybe just me, but I feel like in our culture sometimes, and especially in the church world in America, we have this idea that, oh, we do these things. We engage in evangelism and hospitality and witnessing and all that once we're an expert or we have it all figured out. And even the top of the top in Scripture, they're still growing and developing. They're people, real-time real life, real location, all of that good stuff. Moving on, verse uh, 1 of chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul said, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Okay, three months. I don't know how you want to frame that, but a quarter of the year. So think about your life, uh, summer, uh, spring, fall, winter, whatever, like three months. 
uh, Paul's doing this, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them become obstinate. They refuse to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So three months synagogue, now we're two years where Paul's engaging in the Gentile community, uh, this area, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. And all the Presbyterians said, let's just skip that verse. <laughs> 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish, pre Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in great high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. One of the main things Paul, uh, Luke is doing in introducing us to Paul's work in Ephesus, and this is very key to what we're about to look at, is to show uh, that the Spirit's work is happening, the spread of the gospel. But in verse 20 of chapter 19, we have a first mention. And some of you will be familiar, there's actually something called the principle of first mention, and you can apply this in Scripture. And whenever something is new, or for the first time it's mentioned, we should pay attention. It sets the stage for something. And by the way, if you were not aware, uh, in other parts of Acts, uh, Acts 6-7, Luke tells us the word of God spread. In Acts 12-24, he says the word of God continued to spread and flourish. But here, he adds what? He adds, in power. So you go, well, what is all this business about handkerchiefs and aprons and... Um, healing and the casting out of these demons and kind of this fresh uh, movement of the Holy Spirit in this area of Ephesus. Well, the big deal is something's coming. And there's now the spread of the gospel is being joined with a power from the Spirit uh, as we're getting ready to walk into this. So there's a heightened and accelerate. You should see an acceleration in this part of the story. One of my favorite theologians, I think I'll just read what he wrote because it's, it's better than what I could say. Uh, and now, as a kind of climax to the work, Paul was in one of the major centers of the Mediterranean world. 
Ephesus itself. This is a great city at the hub of trade routes of the world, full of culture and money and temples and politics and soldiers and merchants and slaves and power. Everything we know about Ephesus Ephesus indicates that it was a place where not only social and civic power, but also religious and spiritual power were concentrated. Perhaps that, too, is why Luke had begun the account of Paul's work there with a story about a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. There can be nothing secondhand about the Spirit's power when you're going to face down the powers of the world. And that's what's coming. Here's a question for us as we think of our grid uh, of connecting our call and our context. Um, I think it's a, I've been thinking, what, what would be a question that would work in Greeley, uh, in our places of work, school, life, real life, real time, real location, real people? What's a good question that would maybe disrupt or stir someone? It could be something like, what is the most ultimate thing in your life? Right? What has ultimacy in your life? Um, That gets at a little bit of this power idea. Um, What matters most in your life? You know, that just asking good questions of our baristas and the people we interact with and the librarian and our classmates and um, our fishing buddies and whatever. What's really? Don Orange is catching the six inch trout, the most important thing in your life? There's other things, brother. There's other things. He's, he's here. It's okay. When we hear this word of power, this idea of first mention, um, it's not just a nod to power. It's, not, it's very intentional. It's largely lost in our English translations. And I'll just let you know here. Let's take a look. Uh, as we know, Paul will write a letter to the Christian Ephesians. Look at a few of the things he says in the letter. No coincidence, I don't think. Paul in Ephesians 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope by which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Same language, same words. Um, as the SVB, is that right? The bank, Silicon Valley Bank, collapsed, right? Last, I hope none of you had all your stuff there. Um, we hear in the news this language of be made whole, right? We know what that means financially. The government, it promises to make the investors whole. Really? In what way? Um, the language at play in Ephesus is language of strength and power, and greatness. And Paul uses that, those very constructs and ideas, uh, and he redirects them in a different way uh, in the gospel story. Again, Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If we were in Silicon Valley and someone had just lost a hundred million dollars, uh, a good question would be like, who ultimately makes you whole? Um, Right? Like what? That would be a great, I could imagine Paul, if he was in Silicon Valley, he would write about wholeness, being made whole in the wake of something like that. And what what it really means to be truly made whole. 
Again in Ephesians 3, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is work within us. One last one. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. This is an important theme uh, that we see playing out uh, for Paul, for the Ephesians, and all that is happening. By the way, uh, as we know, if you've been coming on Wednesday especially, power uh, for Paul and in the gospel, it's not what the culture uses as power. We're going to see that in a minute here in Ephesus. Uh, power in the gospel is power to give yourself away. It's the pattern of life, death, and resurrection. It's the power of birth, death, death, rebirth. The power that Paul talks about is a resurrection power, and it results in the healing and flourishing of others. It's for the benefit of other people. It brings about reconciliation with God. It's not a power. It's not a magic. It's not a sorcery. It's not to wow the crowds as we saw with the seven sons of Sceva. Like, it's not a show. It's not for us. It's not for our glory. It's for what God is up to, what he's doing, what he brings about. The human default, we will always use power for self-serving ends. The gospel says, no, no, we use power to leverage our resource and ourselves and everything that God's done so that others might know him, who he is. Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. It's a great statement out of that guy. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Artemis, goddess of fertility and goddess of hunting. Bow and arrow, if you like. Uh, she is also known as the, the god, Greek goddess Diane, uh, Diana, I think. Interesting, twin sister of Apollo. And I don't know if there's any connection, but I find it fascinating that Apollos comes from Alexandria with great power and teaching. And Artemis, the twin sister of Apollos, uh, has her temple in Ephesus. Greek mythology, she's the daughter of Zeus. So that gives you just a sort of a framework for her, right? Here's an artist's rendition. We only have guesses of the temple of Artemis. This, uh, the temple was built three times. Uh, it was around a long time. The first iteration of the temple to Artemis was in the 7th century BC. Okay, so way before Alexander the Great. You got to go way back. Legend has it that a meteorite fell uh, hit the earth somewhere, and that was actually the statue of Artemis. So however that works, that's what the story was. The first temple is destroyed in a flood. The second temple is built around 550 BC, and we know its dimensions, 115 meters long, 
46 meters wide, and has 36 marble columns, the first ever of its kind in the known world. So it was impressive to say the least. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. In 356 BC, it's burned to the ground. And in 323 BC, construction on the third temple begins and stood throughout the time of Jesus and Paul and the early church until 268 when the Goths, a Germanic tribe, destroy it. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Budweiser Center, Loveland. Been to an Eagles game, concert, rodeo. This seats 7,200 people. Okay? Anybody? It's awesome, isn't it? Red Rocks. If you haven't been to a show there, um, not sure why you live in Colorado. So go uh, check that out. You don't have to go to a show. You can go hike around, check it out. Beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, capacity, 9,500. Okay? Ball Arena, formerly Pepsi Center, downtown Denver. Um, capacity here, 21,000, right? Avalanche, um, Nuggets. And right here, just phenomenal. This is the theater in Ephesus. Seating 25,000 people. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but they realized he was a Jew, and they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The puck escapes, and it's McKinnon on it. He's on his horse. Powering through the speed burst. What's to Kelly? Oh my goodness, what a goal from Nathan McKinnon! Hat trick, baby! Are you kidding me? Unbelievable! That's one of the best goals I've ever seen in playoff hockey right there. That's 21,000 people for about 30 seconds. 25,000 people for two hours in a raucous, rioty uproar, screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The scene has been set, right? The gospel is spreading and spreading in power. Um, and this is a really, really wild scene we have. Luke tells us the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. That sounds about right for humanity, right? 
hey, what's most, uh, what are you doing here? What's the most ultimate thing in your life? I have no idea. If you think people are walking around Greeley with all of this stuff sorted out, packaged up, determined, we're wrong. We're wrong. Uh, why? I think Paul understands that too. Humans, people, we are fickle. Uh, in many ways, the worship and fervor around Artemis, and this is from William Willimon, he says, it was a syncretism of idolatrous religious devotion and economic interest. That's what's going on. Probably has entertainment elements, probably has political elements, probably has all that stuff. Devotion to Artemis is shown for what it is, a cover for greed and self-indulgence. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've been brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If, is, if there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After this, after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The gospel of Jesus functions as a critique of all temples at all times in all places, both external and internal. All temples, both external and internal. The idols and places and ultimate allegiance, both external and internal, internal, that lure and rob us of true life and connection with God, the gospel is a direct challenge to that. And as the gospel spreads, both in our hearts and in our families, as well as in our community, uh, those things will bubble up. And God will meet his people and combine his spirit with their activity, both the hard work of their own development and allegiance to him, as well as the spread of that, which brings us back to this grid of connecting our call and our context. In our culture, so we have location, people, interactions, and then the results and fruit. There's underlays, overlays, underlays. There's things at work. In Ephesus, greed was at work. Right? This is that in every category, greed was at play in that story. So is power. Right? So things of the world like greed and power, those are happening. Ultimately, self. Right? The self, uh, this, these would play in our culture as well. People are gen generally, we're focused inward and through something like the power of the Spirit the message of the gospel, who Jesus is, and his call to us, it starts to turn that default and we start to come out. We have a message for people that we interact with that those do not have to be the dominant. Someone who pledges allegiance to Christ, the dominant underlay, overlay, grid on which all this lays 
is ultimately the triune God who is a God of love, God of hope, and it's the person of Jesus, right? And when we are anchored in those, and I would just say like the seven sons of Sceva, if you try to engage in the work of gospel and in the work that Jesus is about without that grid, and you're still working in the power, greed, self-grid, what happens to those guys? Naked and bleeding, right? They get their tails whooped and they run out of the house because that is not how it, it doesn't work that way. This is not something you just sprinkle. You can't just take Jesus, add him to whatever my cocktail is over here and call it good. It's a complete reorientation, a whole new underlay, a whole new overlay. And that's how some of this works. So what is ultimate in your life? Why are you here? What is the main purpose? In whom or in what do you have your ultimate hope? This is the current site of the temple of Artemis. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your work in our lives, uh, that you, we don't have to get everything together and figure it out like... Um, you give us room to develop and grow, but what we do need to have is hearts that are transformed and ultimately oriented towards you. God, we need to walk uh, in our lives by the power of your Spirit. Lord, to discern and know when to move, when to speak, when to ask questions, when to listen. God, uh, just like Paul and Apollos and the early disciples, would you uh, give us your grace and all that we need, your wisdom and your discernment, to engage in the places that you've placed us so that we might declare your great name and the ultimate hope which you have offered to us, reconciliation with God the Father and life everlasting in and through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.